We have come to 1 Samuel 17, which is one of the most familiar stories from the Bible, even for people who haven't read it from the Bible. Maybe they aren't convinced about the Bible, and yet they probably know about David and Goliath, the classic underdog tale, right? But what if I told you that David and Goliath is not really an underdog story? And I don't mean that as some kind of hot take, but the reality is too many times we think about this story And we think of it almost like myth, like Aesop's fables. But this is not Hercules and Zeus. This is not Thor and Loki. This is not Jason and the Argonauts. The Bible presents this as David and Goliath, two real people in a real place at a real moment in time. And when we actually get into the text, this is part of what I love about going verse by verse, we can see in David's own words what he thinks is going on here. I think our key verse is verse 47 of 1 Samuel 17, when David says, all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And so I think for you and I, we want to ask the question, what does it take to take down a giant? Because all of us have giants in our lives, And they may not look like Goliath did in armor standing before a battle. But there are those things that overwhelm us. There are those things that feel insurmountable. And it's at those moments when we feel like the underdog, we want to know, how do I take down the giant? And so I think as we look at this chapter today, we're going to see four ways to take down a giant like Goliath. So let's start in 1 Samuel 17 with verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now I want you to see what this looks like because one of the things that Samuel is doing is that he wants us to know this is not myth, this is not legend, this is not Aesop's fables, this is a real thing in a real place. And so there's a lot of detail in these verses to let us know exactly that thing, including the Valley of Elah. This is a place that you can still see today. And so it describes how the Philistines would be on a mountain on one side, Israel would be on a mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. A couple of months ago, I was in Israel, but I did not get a chance to see this myself. But a couple of my friends actually went there, Todd and Sally and Bill, and they shared their pictures and their stories with me. And this is a path that you can see stepping between those mountains right into this very valley. And so I want you to have this picture in mind. To imagine yourself as we go through these verses, walking between these bushes on this path into that flat ground, the valley where David would stand and the valley where Goliath would stand. Because it goes on to say that a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now you notice this word champion. 
You see, what it's telling us there is that in the ancient world, a lot of times when two nations would fight against one another, they would send champions out, one person who would represent the entire army. Now, on a practical side, that probably reduces the number of death. It costs fewer resources to, to have a one-on-one battle. But who in the world would set all of their hopes, all of their army, all of their nation, even slavery to another country on one person in battle? Well, that's why they send a champion. That's why they only send their best. And Goliath was the strongest of the strong and the best of the best because they believed that really what was happening was that when I send my champion and you send yours, it's not so much the two champions who fight as it is their gods who are fighting. And so if my God is really stronger than your God, he can win with one person as much as he could win with our army, so we'll trust the gods to fight. And so that was kind of the thinking behind this champion mindset of battle. It goes on and says that he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and a shield bearer went before him. Goliath is ready for battle. Now one of the things that happens in this text to help us know that it is not uh, a myth is that he's giving us very specific locations, very specific descriptions. Now, interestingly, the description of Goliath's armor actually led historians for a long time to believe that at the very least, this event could not have happened at this moment in history, if at all. And the reasoning was that the kind of armor that is described for Goliath, this bronze armor, included bronze chainmail. And they knew that the period of history that the Bible says this happened, people weren't wearing bronze chainmail anymore. They believed that, that that had passed a couple hundred years ago and that people were no longer using that kind of armor. They'd never found that kind of armor in that time period. And so that leads people to be skeptical of the story as a whole. Until 2007, when digging in this area of the world and in this exact same time period, they unearthed the remains of bronze chainmail, exactly like the Bible described with David and Goliath in this time period. You see, it's things like that that help us realize as much as this has become a bigger than life story, it is a real life story. In fact, we'll see at the very end of this passage, there's also a city here named Sha'amaim. Now that word actually means two gates. And again, for a long time, people thought, There is no city like that. Nobody builds a city with two gates because it's too hard to defend two gates. The enemy can sneak in the back until a few years ago, they dug up a city right near where they think the Valley of Elah is and it has two gates. And so they think they've actually found that city that is mentioned in this passage. You see, I share that with you Because one of the things that we realize about Goliath is that it looks like from every human perspective, the odds are completely stacked against David. Completely stacked against Israel. Anyone who was going to come out and fight this giant, his armor alone weighed 175 to 200 pounds, let alone the spear. I mean, imagine trying to throw a spear of that weight. And so it goes on to say of Goliath that he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? 
Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. It goes on to say that the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Which actually, that makes a lot of sense, right? There was no one of them who was a match for Goliath. And so I think this is the first way that we've got to think about how to take down giants. When he asks for a champion, when Goliath wants to go one-on-one, don't fight Goliath one-on-one. Like there's actually something wise about what they are doing here. Don't try to take on the giant one-on-one. That is like guaranteed failure. But now we've got to think about this for ourselves for a minute. Because I don't know about you, but um, I don't have any nine foot tall men in iron armor who want me dead. So what does the giant look like for us? You know, Joe Foch, one of the pastors that I, I love to listen to, he put it this way. It's unforgiveness, lust, anxiety, whatever tries to enslave us and tell us that we can't win, that is a giant. Those are the things that we cannot defeat ourselves who would try to tell us that the situation we're in, maybe the sin we're trying to overcome, maybe the the obedience we're trying to follow God in is not possible and we can't win. Those are the things that become the giants in our lives. A couple years ago at Horizon, I I met a friend here and he and his wife were going through something very difficult because the first time we talked, he had called me because he was a vice president at his company. Life was going well. They had two sweet children, but he had been caught up in a gambling addiction. And he had tried to beat it himself. And he thought, I've got to stop this. You know, if somebody finds out or, you know, and it was starting to eat away at his marriage and eat away at their finances. And essentially he got caught And like the world came to a stop. But when he and I talked, it was the first time that he decided not to fight the giant one-on-one, but that he needed God's help. He started spending time in God's word. He started praying about it. And I just caught up with him uh, earlier this week. And he told me now, two years removed from it, that the desire from gambling is gone. You know, that God has healed that in him. His wife graciously said she was willing to fight to rebuild trust in the marriage. They would say now that their marriage is better than it's ever been before. And they were just blessed to welcome a third child into their family. Now, of course, things don't always go smoothly all the time for any of us. But I realized that the big breakthrough for him was that he'd been trying to fight the giant himself. And this was the moment that he realized he needed to find more resources than he had. But isn't that what David is about to do? Look what it says. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names 
of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul. Sounds like he would come and go to check on his brothers to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. So every day, Goliath is coming out to challenge the people of God. Now you note how it says that David was the youngest of these eight brothers. Interestingly, this is part of why we think that David was just a youth, maybe even just a boy. It will go on in this chapter to many times refer to him as a youth. But it's also because at that time in Israel, if you were 20 years old, you were required to go and fight in the army. So the fact that his three oldest brothers are there means there are at least four more brothers before you get to David. So we don't know exactly what their ages might be. We don't know Maybe they were quadruplets and he's not that far behind. But that's why we think that David was probably somewhere around 16 or 18 at this time. So it goes on to say that Jesse said to his son David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these 10 loaves and run to your brothers at the camp. Verse 18, and carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. So the father sends his son. He wants to hear how things are going. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah. Remember that picture we saw, fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And as he came to the camp, as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle, For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array. They've got their armor. They've got their weapons. They've got their their, uh, lineups ready to go. Army against army. And David left his supplies in the hands of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name coming up from the armies of the Philistines and he spoke according to the same words, the same thing he'd been saying for 40 days. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So it says they're out there to fight. It says they've got their battle array, but they were still afraid and they were running away from one man. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches. We'll give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Not a bad deal, right? I'm not sure if those are in order of how great they're supposed to be. Riches and marriage and no taxes. But look at what happens next. Verse 26 says, then David spoke. I want you to realize that this is the first time David ever speaks in the Bible. A man from whom we hear more than almost anyone else besides Jesus. The man that you and I know, the Messiah will be called the son of David. And even here we begin to see parallels in his life to what Jesus would experience 
And watch what he says the first time he ever speaks in this book. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Remember, he uses that phrase, uncircumcised, to refer to someone who is not a part of God's covenant, someone who is not a follower of God and who ultimately is an enemy of God. So he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The first time David ever speaks, he speaks up for the living God. I think that is the second way that we take down giants. Speak up for the living God. You see, in this moment, David believes not that God is some disembodied force, some placebo that just helps him tap into the power within himself. No, he believes that God is real, God is active, and he's alive. Just as much, really more than you and I are right now, and he can help right now. And David sees that there is an enemy speaking against God, at best ignoring him, but there are people who think of themselves as the people of God that have forgotten him. I think this is an encouragement for us to speak up for the living God. Not only to the people in our own community who who know him, who love him like we do, but even to those around us who may feel at odds with God, you know, maybe may feel angry or frustrated or, or, or uncertain about God or, or maybe just are unaware of him. That like David, we have an opportunity when we face these challenges to speak up for the living God. Now it says in verse 27 that Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and he said why did you come down here and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you have come down to see the battle isn't that totally like the jerk older brother kind of thing to say <laughs> and, and I can say that because I was that older brother sometimes so uh Sean I'm sorry <laughs> Don't worry, we've talked it out. But listen to this. I mean, he's saying, why did you come down here? He completely misreads what David is here for. But look at what David says next. David said, what have I done? What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting here, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but you start to just listen to these notes of how David is already pointing us to Jesus. I, I mean, think about this. The father sent the son down here to save the people from an enemy that is too strong for them. And the son is obedient. And the son is humble and the son trusts God. And the people closest to him didn't understand. It may be that David came down to see 
the battle. But Jesus came down to win the battle. And so when people hear that David might be willing to fight this giant, it says that they're going to bring him to Saul. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able. Think how much he sounds like the older brother. He sounds like the enemy. That you are not able is a lie that the enemy would love for you to believe. He says, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. Notice that the anointed king still thinks like a servant. So David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, get this, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Catch a lion by the beard. That is some courage. Your servant has killed both lion and bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing as he has defied the armies of the living God. Even here in this moment, David sees himself as a servant and gives all credit to the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. You see how every step of the way, David speaks up for the living God. Every step of the way, he believes that he will be delivered by a God who is truly there and with him at home, in the field, with the sheep, against a lion, against a bear. And this day, as he steps through that path into the valley where he will meet the giant. You see, to be ready to face a giant like that, you have to know that there's a living God. You have to have a relationship with God like David did. I actually think we saw the same thing with Jonathan back in chapter 14, that Jonathan and David are gonna become amazing friends. And I think this kind of moment is why, these kindred spirits, because they're not out there saying, I wonder if God is real. Hey, go get the magic box and maybe we'll win. Like we've already seen that that doesn't work. These are men and David is a man who has spent so much time with God before he ever sees the bear, before he ever sees the lion, and before he ever sees the giant. And so those become moments of confidence, events in his life, affirmation that God is who he says he is. And so I think for us, I mean, just as friends, but as a Horizon community, this is why we put so much energy into helping you connect with God through his word and through other people that are pursuing him like you are. It's why we do verse by verse studies. You think about the time that David spent sitting in that field, learning God's word, even writing God's word and getting to know God better, singing to him, worshiping him. You know, it's why we choose just carefully and prayerfully selected songs, both for our exploring service 
and the ones that we sing to God in our equipping service when we worship him. It's why we have a customized app because we did a lot of homework and there are a lot of really good apps out there. But then we sit down in this place because we're actually talking about you and me and what tools do I need to understand his word and draw closer to God. And we said, you know what? We, we wanna customize this thing ourselves so that it has the messages, the resources, the data, the connections, the links to sources that we know that we can trust to follow up on God's word and get to know him better. It's why we do verse by verse. It's why we do study groups because we don't know exactly what day we're gonna face the giant in the valley. And so we want to know the living God before we get there. You see, when we do that, then we come to the battle with something better than weapons. All right, that's what David was doing. For all of the warriors that were standing lined up, for all of the men in armor that were scared and ran away, David came to the battle with something better than weapons, better than his own resources. You see, most of the time when you and I face the giant and we hit the moment that I say, I am not up to this. I mean, maybe in the midst of, of, of coronavirus even, even as things are trying to reopen and this is different and that is different and we still don't know what's changing and I thought I could do this for like two months, but if this is gonna last forever, I'm not so sure that I have it in me. And often that's the moment that something starts to release. You start to find freedom because you don't have it in you. You need to come with more than your resources, more than your weapons. Come to the battle with something better than weapons because Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David is starting to look like Goliath. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy, and good looking. Notice the only thing David brings with him, a sling and five stones. I think that's interesting for us to think about because it's not as if God just says, you stand still, I'll bring a lightning bolt. Uh, now we've seen that at times where God says, Israel, you wait, I'll win the battle. But you remember a couple chapters ago, Jonathan said, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. God has so many ways that he can achieve this victory. And so David is bringing with him what he knows how to use. And yet he knows it's not the stones that save him. He brings his resources, but they're not really in his hands. He's putting them in God's hands. I think that's powerful for us because I am standing in a beautiful building with fantastic cameras you know, spending time building PowerPoints, spending time in study groups, all of these resources, our app, all these things we talk about, we've got to realize like David, those things don't save anybody. And yet those become our smooth stones. The things that we bring with us and say, God, we know that you can save. 
And so we offer you these stones. Whether it takes one, whether it takes five, we don't know, but we believe that you are going to continue to work, that you are going to bring victory and that you can beat a giant. Look at what Goliath says. So the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Noticing the staff that David has. This is a picture of my dog. For a dog, a stick means playtime. This is funny to Goliath. Okay, this is just a game. Like this, after 40 days of shouting at their army, this is what you send me? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But David is coming with something better than weapons. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Better than weapons, David comes in the name of the Lord of hosts. Don't miss this. This is the book, if you remember, where we heard for the first time ever, God called by this name, the Lord of hosts. In the mouth of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, the mentor of David. And in this moment, you realize how many times this passage has told us that Goliath is the champion and Goliath is his name. But David says, not I come in my name. David says, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. What you realize now, this is not an underdog story because it's not really David versus Goliath. David is not the champion. God is. This is Goliath versus God. And Goliath is woefully outmatched. I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you and this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. So it was, verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the enemy to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. We need to know whose battle it is. David has victory in this moment because the battle is the Lord's. So think about what the giants might be in your life. I was talking to another friend right here at Horizon, a man named Ryan, because he and his wife, April, are part of something so unique that is a giant that I could never have imagined and I think they couldn't have either. 
You see, a few years ago, Ryan went on a global serving trip, not as a part of Horizon, but he went into India because he was trying to help release women from the sex slave industry. And as he went into these brothels to help bring women out, he saw such a darkness. He knew something had to be done, but he felt like he couldn't go back. He just wasn't up to it. And yet he did feel like God was asking him to do something. And he realized one of the most dangerous things for these women is that when they are rescued, they have nowhere to go. And so he thought, well, I may not be able to go back in there, but, but I could start a company. And so he and his wife, April, they prayed about it and they started a company right here in Cincinnati called the Aruna Project that is supported partly by giving, but also because they deal in consumer goods. And they actually hire the women coming out of that slavery to be artisans, handcrafting the pieces that they sell. And it has been amazing to see how God has built that up. They now have almost 100 artisans in India who've been rescued from that life. And Ryan would tell you, he, he, he had no idea how that would be possible. Even when they started the company, he thought he would start it and pass it off to somebody else. And yet here they still are today. And God continues to bring resources, continues to provide encouragement, continues to bring women into freedom because he has resources we do not have and he can win the battle. In fact, even in the midst of coronavirus, their team came together and said, we are going to trust God and no matter what else happens, if nothing else, the artisans must continue to be paid. And so there are women, women on the other side of the planet giving thanks because even though they're not working, they're still receiving their income so they do not go back to that old life. Now, maybe you're not starting a company today Maybe you are, or maybe you have a company and you think there might be ways that God could leverage your resources, your five stones, your giving, even here at Horizon or, or to other places, you know, ideas where you see needs. But sometimes the giant is a little bit closer to home. A temptation that you've wanted to overcome, but you've been trying to face Goliath yourself. Or some grief that you feel like you're just not up to. Or maybe something exciting, something you would love to accomplish, but you don't know if you have it in you. Remember whose battle it is. The battle does not belong to temptation. The battle does not belong to pornography. The battle does not belong to addiction. It does not belong to gambling. The battle does not belong to fear. The battle does not belong to grief. The battle does not belong to coronavirus or anything else that could be around us in this world. It does not belong to the giant. But the good news is the battle does not belong to me either or to you. The battle is the Lord's. And that word is all over scripture. Exodus 14, 14 says that God will fight for you. And right after that, the people walk through the Red Sea and he closes it on their enemy. In 2 Chronicles 20, God says, I will fight for you. And he defeats an, a, an army of multiple nations without his people ever raising a weapon. In the New Testament, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves, 4,000 people with seven loaves. And right after that, the disciples forget to bring bread for lunch and they think they're gonna starve. And Jesus tells them, where's your faith? Don't you realize I can save by many or by few? I have resources you can't imagine. The battle is the Lord's. 
David has victory because he trusts the living God. In fact, this passage goes on to say in the last few verses that now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron and wounded the Philistines and the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'araim. That's that city we mentioned at the beginning. Even as far as Gath and Ekron, then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Even in this moment, it is not about David. Even in this moment, it doesn't say his name. In fact, at that moment of Goliath's defeat, verses 50 and 51 actually say, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. He had something better than weapons. Therefore David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. I don't want you to miss that contrast. Their champion was dead, but ours is alive. He is the living God and the battle is the Lord's. I'd like to close with a prayer that actually comes from Psalm 9 because as we get to know David, we'll see some of the songs he wrote during this time and we think this Psalm actually came after David defeated Goliath. So to close us in prayer, I will just pray for us. Psalm 9 verses 1, 2, and 10. We will praise you, O Lord, with our whole heart. We will tell of all your marvelous works. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Amen.